This is Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gettler. And this is episode 20 in our series for 2015. And today's date is Friday the 19th of June. And the slate shows what this week? Well, Gary, we have a terrific interview with... uh Grant Williams. He's the Portfolio and Strategy Advisor to Vulpus Investment Management in Singapore. And he's going to be talking to us all about markets and what's happening with Greece. And he's got some pretty strong views on it. That's right. And uh, then we're going to have a chat to RMIT economist uh, Jonathan Boimel, and we'll be talking to him whether we are in the midst of a housing bubble. Very interesting that is too, and uh, affects most of us, I suppose. Absolutely. So now let's listen to Grant Williams. Well, Grant, you've been uh, watching the markets for some time. Uh, what can you tell us? I mean, how has Greece's turmoil affected Germany? The answer to that is yet to be fully seen. At the moment, it's affecting them politically, obviously. Um, we've seen uh, we've seen a great deal of upheaval, and, and the German people are getting very fed up with what they call you know, the lazy Greeks. There's a lot of uh, mainstream media beating on the Greeks over there. And that's very much the mentality of, of the Germans, you know, who are, who are traditionally very hardworking savers, um, and the Greeks not so much. So, you know, politically, uh, it's come at a very, very bad time because the whole of Europe is seeing an uprising in these sort of, uh, non-mainstream, non-centrist, far left and far right parties. And, uh, look, in Germany, what's going on in Greece really doesn't play well. And I think you can see that in the reaction that, uh, someone like Wolfgang Schäuble, for example, has, has been very, very hard on the Greeks, uh, and I think that is trying to play to their political base. Um, Germany has this young upstart party called Alternative for Deutschland, which is uh, an anti-Euro, anti-EU party. Uh, who've done very, very well in the polls, as, as has been seen all across Europe. So the, really the, the fallout so far has been political. Uh, when they add the n- numbers up of Greece leaving um, the euro potentially, the Germans will then see the size of the bill they're going to be stuck with, and it's many, many billions of dollars. But, but do you see the potential for a third bailout? I mean, people are talking about it now. Well, yeah, look, there's a potential because both sides... I mean, look, look if, you, if you actually just think about this in, in the human terms of it, if you're the Greeks, so far you, you have made promises all along and been handed money, and you realise that you, you've almost been conditioned to understand that if you, if you make promises you'll be given money. And then if you follow through on the promises, great. If you don't, you know what? So far, the evidence is there that you'll be given more money. We seem to be reaching a point now where that's becoming evident to all sides. The Greeks are making promises that I suggest they're not 100% set on keeping. Uh, and the EU, you can see in, in the degree to which they're playing hardball, are obviously realising that, you know what, these guys are probably going to promise us anything just to get the money. If you keep getting the money, then it makes sense to keep making the promises. I mean, essentially, this is unworkable. The Greeks will have to leave at some point. So why not scoop up a few more billion on the way out the door? I mean, it's it's a perfectly sensible thing for them to do. On the other side of it, um, for for the EU, they don't really want someone to leave this currency. You know, there, there isn't any mechanism in the Maastricht Treaty for anybody to leave or be expelled. You know, that's how certain they were that this thing was going to stick together. So uh, they don't want them to leave because it'll be expensive, but they're reaching the point of no return now where they realise it's just pouring good money after bad. Well, and also the German problem for Angela Merkel is that uh, if something doesn't happen soon, she's going to be in a political morass, isn't she? 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. And, and they've seen with the rise of Saritza, they're, see, they're seeing with the rise of Podemos in, in uh, Spain and less extreme, but the rise of UKIP in the UK, that there is a big swelling of anti-European sentiment. And politically, that's not a good thing for these incumbent uh, politicians. Do you see Greece's leaving the EU as inevitable? I do. I, I do. I mean, I, I think it's been baked in the cake for some time now. Um, I'm surprised they've managed... Well, not managed. I mean, I guess if you throw billions and billions of euros at a problem, you can make it go away for a little while. I'm, I'm surprised they've thrown as much money as they have at it, but this project is incredibly important to, to the political class in Europe. But uh, you know, I'm, I'm a great believer that the, the rules that these guys cannot write, uh, rewrite, the only laws they can't rewrite are those of mathematics. And mathematically, Greece can't stay in this construct. So I think, uh, I think they will leave. Um, I'm surprised it's lasted this long. I don't know how much longer it can last, but at some point, I think they're going to have to leave. I think that's inevitable. The value of the euro is dropping. Is the market factoring some of this in? Well, the euro is dropping because, uh, largely because of QE. I think actually if the Greeks left, the euro would probably bizarrely enough strengthen because you're going to get rid of one of the weaker creditors in, in the monetary union. Um, and that's going to be a good thing for the euro. I mean, the, the, the ECB have been desperately trying to get the euro down. They're having some success now, but a lot of the move in the euro is actually just uh, the converse of the strengthening of the US dollar. So, um, no, I think if, uh, if Greece leaves the euro, you'll see the euro strengthen. And so how do you see that affecting the market when Greece leaves? Well, no, look, nobody likes turmoil, and, and the problem um, when Greece leaves uh, is just the uncertainty because it's not happened before. And any time markets get uncertainty, they get volatile. And I think after six years of conditioning through the sort of movements of central banks and politicians right across the world, not just in Europe, but the central banks have created a very stable environment. And that's been important because, as I said, markets like stability and they like knowing what's coming. Greece leaving would throw a huge spanner in the works because there is literally no precedent. We don't know what will happen. And markets get very, very nervous when they don't know what happens. I mean, you've seen recently the Swiss National Bank when they removed their peg from the euro. That was the first surprise we've had from a major central bank in six years. And and immediately we saw a G7 currency move 40% in an hour, which has never happened before. So that kind of volatility is what you can expect to see should something like Greece live in the euro happen now. And that will affect global markets too, inevitably, won't it? Absolutely. I mean, it's very hard now for any market to act in a vacuum. I mean, the world is so interconnected down and so interdependent that uh, it's very difficult for there to be some upheaval in Europe when it's to be ring-fenced and not affect the US, Asia, Australia. So what would you be advising clients to do? Well, I think, I've been saying this for a little while now, I think regardless of the fact that the equity markets, for example, are making new highs seemingly every day, those highs are getting smaller and smaller, uh, I think it's a time to be very, very cautious. I, I think uh, people should be raising cash right now. I think there will be uh, chances to pick up um, stocks, assets, bonds at much, much better valuations. Everything's very, very stretched right now. Um, and, and the bond market, for example, I mean, if you look at if you look across Europe, you're, you're going to see bond yields at levels uh, they haven't been at in 700 years. I mean, that's that's something I keep saying to people. If you can make a trade that you would have only been wrong once in the last 700 years, that's a sensible trade to make, and that would be selling sovereign government bonds. But bizarrely, what's happening now with the ECB starting their QE program is a shortage of collateral, and, and people don't want to sell their bonds because they think the ECB is going to come in and have to buy them. So we've got these really crazy markets. 
markets where the interference of central banks has corrupted the price signals that traditionally dictate where asset prices trade. Uh, so for me, I think this is a time to be raising cash um, and looking for looking for yield in, in in fairly safe places. And that may not be in listed equities and, and bonds at the moment. It may be in slightly more esoteric investments. Well, what sort of esoteric investments are we talking about here? Well, I think there are, there are, there are pockets in real estate markets um, where you can actually buy assets that haven't had too much capital appreciation and will throw off a nice dividend yield. Um, I think that's uh, that's something that you have to be very careful. You can't just rush in and buy it. You need to do it the right way and you need to get the right um, due diligence done. Uh, I think people should own some precious metals. Uh, I've been saying that for a while now. I think they're, they're a very good insurance policy to have and, and people get a little confused that because they haven't moved up, um, they tend to think they won't, um, but in times of dislocation, they do and they will. And, and, and I think there are, there are things like, uh, like farmland, which are much more difficult to buy. Uh, and then they're not for everybody, but something like that, which which synthesizes a bond that has a capital component and throws off a yield with the food you produce, is a very very sensible investment. So real estate would be the prime thing to start looking at. Yeah, no, it, it is. But I think you have to take uh, you have to take a global view. It's very tough. I mean, here here in Sydney, obviously the real estate market is still extremely high. It's it's a, it's not a market where you're going to find the kind of bargains that you know when you buy them uh, are going to actually do very very well for you over the long term. Whereas somewhere like Germany, for example, uh, where you haven't seen any real appreciation in in the uh, in the real estate market because Germans traditionally are renters, they're not buyers, um, and so over there that you can buy some really decent uh, real estate that hasn't gone up in the last 10, 15, 20 years and throws off 8 to 12 percent. In, in returns, but that's not something everybody can just do. You can't you can't go onto your your, your E-Trade account, click a button, and buy a German apartment. You need to you need to have people on the ground that can help you do that, or you need to go there yourself, kick the tires, and find where these places are. So it's getting harder and harder for. Um, just the man in the street to invest his money, which is why you're seeing this phenomenon of a lot of money going into things like ETFs, where people just kind of hear that, hey, the pharmaceutical, the biotech sector is doing well, I'm going to buy the biotech ETF. And that's great on the way up. But when things turn, uh, they turn very quickly and you throw into the mix all the algorithmic trading that's going on, the automated trading with these robot computers that are now up to 70% of the volume on the New York Stock Exchange. And, and when that tide turns, these things will go down a lot faster and a lot sharper than they've gone up. So it's a very, very dangerous time to to be invested. Uh, if you don't know exactly what you're doing, you haven't got really smart people managing your money, which is why I think that uh, the odds favor building up a decent uh, cash out. Grant Williams, thank you very much for your time. Great pleasure, guys. Well, we said he had strong views on Greece and it certainly show. It's absolutely. All right, now, uh, Jonathan and housing. Jonathan Boymel, we've heard of late about a housing bubble. What's your view about it? Like any market, prices reflect the interaction of supply and demand. The issue with ha- with housing is that the liquid part of the market is quite small. So if we have changes in demand, price changes are going to be magnified, right? So if we have changes in the fundamentals, we're going to have magnified price changes. And we see that fundamentals actually do matter. So we've seen that in Perth, for example, prices have fallen, house prices have fallen by about 11% over the year. In Sydney and Melbourne, however, housing demand has lifted relative to a supply that doesn't change very quickly. So yeah, we're seeing mortgage debt and house prices as measured relative to income hitting, hitting record levels. That doesn't necessarily mean it's a, it's a bubble. When we take a look on the demand side, we've got strong fundamentals because of rapid population growth. 
We've also got exceptionally low mortgage rates and rising dwelling prices are part of the transmission mechanisms, mechanism of monetary policy. That's right? a deliberate strategy. Rising prices boost household wealth, lift sentiment, and that increases spending. It's very hard to define a bubble by just looking at what's happening to, to prices. Very often when we talk about a bubble, at the back of our minds we mean that asset prices have become far removed from, from fundamental values, but it's very difficult to look at prices and to determine whether or not they're actually out of line with, with fundamentals. Rising prices need to be backed by an acceleration in housing credit growth over a short period of time. Over the last few months, well, the housing finance data post the uh, RBA rate cut in February has been positive, but I wouldn't consider it dramatic. When we have a look at bubbles, we also see that it tends to be associated with an easing in lending standards. And we know there hasn't been a, an easing in lending standards. We know that um, the financial sector regulator, APRA, has been working with banks to keep a lid on lending growth for investors and to, pay na to maintain lending standards. So to say that there's been a, a, a relaxing of, of uh, lending standards, I, I think would be, would be incorrect. One aspect, though, that is often associated with bubbles is we tend to see some sort of social contagion, you know, that people don't want to miss out. My neighbour invested three or four years ago and now he's sold, he's flipped the property and, you know, he's doing exceptionally well. I think there is an element of that, that social contagion out there. But again, the other aspects of, of what we commonly see associated with, with bubbles doesn't, doesn't appear to be, to be occurring at the moment. You know, we tend to say that we have a bubble when prices are driven by speculation about what's going to be happening to prices. And in some cases, that's actually, that's actually rational, rational. For any expectation about the future of house prices, there will be a particular current level of house prices. So it's very difficult to say whether or not that expectation is, is correct or, or incorrect. HSBC put out a note last week saying that property prices in Sydney had appreciated 39%, in Melbourne by 22%. Paul Bloxham from HSBC said it wasn't a bubble, but he said it was worrisome because the price increases had seemed to be outstripping income growth. So is that a concern? Well, look, the Treasury Secretary, John Fraser, said that Sydney and parts of Melbourne were unequivocally in a, in a property bubble. Um, the Assistant RBA Governor, Malcolm Eady, also said that some people call what we are seeing a bubble, but it's very, it's very hard to define. To some extent, we know that things will just self-correct, okay? And, and higher prices are a, a part of that. If low interest rates were to stimulate dwelling construction, it must be through an increase in the price of existing properties. Otherwise, there'd be no, no impetus for the housing stock to expand. And if it's relatively costly, relatively complex to build new houses, then we do need a greater rise in prices for existing dwellings before new, um, new construction picks up. And this tends to be one of the features of the Australian housing market compared to housing markets overseas. You know, the pattern differs by, by the, the, the segment of the market that we're looking at. For example, high density dwellings um, in the CBD in Melbourne. We know we've got concerns about, about the supply and prices will will tend to, tend, to, tend to drop. But if you take a look at Sydney, for example, vacancy rates are still relatively low. All right? So that reflects the strong, you know, the strong, the strong fundamentals in that, in that particular market. Mortgage payments as a, a share of an individual's income, is that getting to be a worrisome point? Because paying off, say, a mortgage of, uh, say, you've got a half million dollars, 
six hundred thousand mortgage, it's going to cost you what two and a half, three thousand a month. So we're looking at two two separate things. The first is the user cost of housing, which incorporates everything, including mortgage repayments, because of the relatively low or the record low interest rates at the moment. The user cost of housing is relatively low. Mortgage debt, however, as a proportion of income, that is that is relatively high. Right. So the concern, obviously, is if prices do drop, people are going to be left with significant mortgage debt, and then this is going to have an impact on consumer sentiment, wealth, and and consumption. Because the argument is, well, you know, the investor segment now is accounting for a very large part of housing activity at the present. So if prices drop, they'll be left holding the bag. So we don't really need to be concerned, but we do need to be concerned because we've got a large amount of household wealth locked up in housing and a drop in housing prices will have an adverse impact on the on the real economy. That could have a massive impact on the economy. I mean, uh, witness, for example, what happened with uh, the American housing market. Exactly. That's the, that's, that's the real concern. But the flip side, however, is lower interest rates generating higher prices and boosting household wealth and lifting sentiment. So, you know, it cuts... It cuts both ways. So do you see, I mean, the Reserve Bank has been indicating it's uh, still open to cutting interest rates. Do you see that further happening? That's a very good question. We know that the Reserve Bank of Australia would probably like to cut interest rates further. And one of the reasons why um, you've had some statements from the RBA and, and Treasury officials is that they want to cut interest rates to reduce the value of the Aussie dollar, but they don't want that translating into into higher house prices. So in order to make Australia more, more competitive, a couple of ways we can do it. One way is to reduce real wages, right? That's not particularly palatable, particularly in a low inflation environment. And so Australia does need a further exchange rate reduction in order to boost competitiveness. The trouble is though, that we're not alone in wanting this. The world is engaged in various forms of, of currency wars. Um, so we really are waiting to see what the next move is from the, from the Fed and the ECB. And the global context of of interest rates before we really know what what's going to happen to uh, what's going to happen to official interest rates in Australia. Expectation is, of course, that the Federal Reserve will um, raise the cash rate. That's right. So that will then do the heavy lifting for us in terms of reducing um, the value of the Aussie dollar, and therefore require less official intervention by the RBA in terms of our cash rate. All eyes would then would be on the Fed to see which way the Fed will go and that will determine which way the RBA will go. Is that right? Absolutely, absolutely. You know, we're looking globally um, at this search for search for yield um, and that's happening across the board because of the deliberate actions of central banks across the world with easy money. Um, I think if we see action on the part of the Fed, then the RBA really won't need to, to step in to generate a further reduction in the value of the Aussie dollar. And how likely do you think the Fed will be raising interest rates? I think the the likelihood grows month by month by month. As the, as the US economy recovers? Correct. And it's recovering quite reasonably well at the moment. Yeah, I, th- I think so, with, with, with uh, jobs growth and so on. So we'll, we'll, have to, we'll have to see. I mean, the RBA wants interest rates uh, to be cut again because business investment um, isn't looking healthy across all sectors, and lower borrowing rates may not generate in much more investment, but it's the only way that the RBA knows to, to get the value of the Aussie dollar down. So either the Fed has to do the moving or uh, the ABA. So all eyes are on the Fed? All eyes on the Fed. 
Jonathan Boymel, thank you very much. Thank you. And it's not over yet, is it? Indeed. And I mean, I saw a study yesterday from um, Curtin University showing that uh, our debt is highest. Our household debt is at highest level in 25 years. And most of the money has gone into housing. And curiously, it isn't, we're still not catching up with the demand for accommodation. That's right, because it's all about investment. Well, yeah, that's right. We'll become a nation of renters, you know that, Leon? And a nation of landlords. More renters than landlords. Anyway, the news. First of all, all efforts are underway to stop a Grexit, which is looking more and more likely. The Greek Central Bank has warned for the first time that the country could crash out of the Eurozone and even the European Union if it fails to reach a bailout deal with international creditors. Now, what happened over the weekend, last weekend, was that talks aimed at reaching an 11th hour deal between Greek ministers and their bailout creditors collapsed on Sunday night. And the breakdown is the clearest sign yet. The differences between the two sides might be too wide to breach. The Greeks walked out after just 45 minutes. Yeah, and they're pretty angry. And they went out accusing the IMF of being criminals. That's right. The uh, European Commission says there remains a significant gap between the two sides, amounting to €2 billion per year. There isn't much time left to reach a positive assessment of Greek efforts before a high-stakes meeting of Eurozone finance ministers, which is due on Thursday. And actually, that Eurogroup meeting is seen by many as a last chance to secure a deal on an agreed list of economic reforms its creditors are demanding in order to release a 7.2 billion euro aid tranche before Greece's EU bailout runs out at the end of the month. Greece is now entering the final stretch of negotiations with the international creditors over the bailout agreement, but you'd have to say that the atmosphere has become somewhat strained. Bordering on poisonous. That's right. The biggest problem is the Greeks don't want any more austerity and one can understand that from a human point of view, but Europe is not going to keep on grubstaking them. But it looks like a Greek exit is looking more and more likely. Now, in a world-beating rally, the Chinese stock market has hit $10 trillion for the first time. And data compiled by Bloomberg shows that the value of companies with a primary listing in China are now valued at $10.05 trillion. That's up $6.7 trillion in just 12 months, with valuations climbing to their highest level in five years. And the Shanghai Composite Index has rallied 152% in the past 12 months. And that's the most among any of the global benchmark indexes tracked by Bloomberg. Now, what's interesting, Gary, is that the rest of the Chinese economy is struggling with low growth and bad indicates from retail sales to industrial output. They're growing near their slowest pace in years and trade remains weak. But Chinese investors are taking more risk and they're pouring borrowed money and it's borrowed into the nation's equities and betting the gains will continue. It looks like a bubble. It certainly does. And the last one they had was, what, 2007 and that burst. So there's going to be a lot of people out of pocket there. Indeed. Now, the Australian economy is losing momentum, weighed down by falls in dwelling approvals and consumer confidence. The latest Westpac Melbourne Institute leading index, which indicates the likely pace of economic activity three to nine months into the future, fell 0.21 percentage points to just below zero in May. But what's interesting, another interesting piece of news, Gary, is that the mining tax is back on the agenda. And less than a year after the coalition repealed the Labor's ill-fated mineral resource rent tax, the Australian Industry Group is calling on the Abbott government to again consider a profit-based tax that would replace royalties. And in its submission to Treasury's tax discussion paper, the AIG said the debacles with the previous mining tax was no reason not to look at a resources rent tax. So back on the agenda, we're back where we started. Now, uh, small businesses are going to get a tax cut from July after the Senate passed a budget package with little debate. Labor and the Greens backed the package, which includes a $20,000 instant asset write-off on an unlimited number of purchases. 
and a 1.5% tax cut. And debate actually lasted just over an hour in the Senate, so it just went through very quickly. Now, to the bubble that we were talking about before with Jonathan and Reserve Bank of Australia Assistant Governor Christopher Kent is warning that a spike in property prices because of a sharp drop in available land is on the cards. And he says in a speech to the Australian National University in Canberra on Monday, he warned that further substantial increases in residential construction might run up against some supply constraints, and that's going to put upward pressure on housing prices. And he says that's going to be a risk for the economy because if the big increase in prices coincided with a surge in borrowing and weaker lending standards, it would actually hurt the economy. And he said the shortfall was most evident in Sydney, where Greenfield land releases have failed to keep pace with recent demand. Now, his comments come after Treasury Secretary John Fraser said last week there was evidence of a housing bubble in Sydney and in high-priced areas of Melbourne. Yeah, well, what's the median price uh, in Sydney is over a million dollars now. Now, what's the significance of his speech is that it points to another driver of accelerating prices. That's a lack of available land, and that's determined by state and local government. Things like parklands or what used to be called crown lands will come under pressure. Now, interesting report from PricewaterhouseCoopers, and they said that the Australia's media industry faces a subdued economy and sectoral issues right through to 2019. Now, their Australian Entertainment and Media Outlook said that the Australian advertising market managed growth of just 2.4% in 2014. That's compared to 6.4% in 2013. And at the same time, total consumer and advertising spender in the sector nosedive from 6.8% in 2013 to 3.3% in 2014. Internet advertising is increasing at a 13% compound rate per year. That's forecast to reach $8.2 billion which will easily overshadow the $3.8 billion earmark for free-to-wear TV, $1.5 billion for newspapers and $1.3 billion for radio. So PwC is forecasting a shift towards targeted advertising with more Australians embracing mobile platforms and wearable technology, and that's not a good look for the media. TV programs now being delivered over the internet to mobiles and to uh, computers and, and smart TVs, and that's really going to hurt them. Now, the head of the government's financial services inquiry, David Murray, is telling Tony Abbott to act on financial services reforms quickly. You see, what happened over last weekend was that Financial Services Minister Matthias Corman told Sky News the government's response to his inquiry is months away. Now, Murray said the government should act sooner than later to short-circuit the speculation about what's ahead. Now, we all remember in his report released at the end of last year, he made a number of recommendations that would transform the industry, like getting banks to increase their capital requirements to make them more resilient to financial shock and taking closer look at tax breaks on superannuation and housing because he said these were distorting behaviour and posing a risk to the financial system and economy. But uh, the Abbott government doesn't seem to be much of a hurry to handle that. No, well, it'd, be, it'd take its popularity even further down. Now to some company news and Metcash posted a loss of $384.2 million for the 12 months ending in April and that's the first loss since 1998. It's going to sell its automotive business to Burson Group for $275 million. And that's well below the $350 million it hoped to achieve under the original plan for, a, for an IPO. That will raise funds to reduce debts of $667 million. But, I mean, Metcash, which is a wholesaler to all the IGA stores, is going to keep struggling. It will indeed. And of course, on the other side of the table, you've got Burson. It's a very, very strategic purchase for them. They'll become the leader in that sector. Yeah. Now, Foxtel is going to take a 15% stake in Network 10 after the two broadcasters signed a long-awaited deal to bolster the third-place free-to-air TV network. And 10 announced a $154 million capital raising, where new shares are going to be issued at $0.15 per share. Now, if that sounds like a bargain, it is. 
because the shares were trading at 26 cents. <laughs> yes, and all of that's going to be picked up, of course, by Foxtel. It's going to get a 15% stake in 10. And as part of the deal, 10 will take a 24.99% stake in Foxtel's advertising business, multi-channel network. So 10 will have the option to become a 10% shareholder in Foxtel's online streaming venture, Presto, within two years. It's not a bad life raft. Now, according to a new report from the Australian Computer Society in Deloitte Access Economics, the digital economy's contribution to the Australian economy increased from $50 billion in 2011 to $79 billion in 2013-14. It now represents 5.1% of GDP. This report, Australia's digital piles forecast that employment industry was expected to grow by 2.5% per year over the next five years to 2020. And that's well above the jobs in the national economy, which are forecast to grow by 1.6%. And there are now 600,000 ICT professionals making up 5% of the Australian labour force. But the Australian Computer Society is saying we've got a problem because they're saying the industry needs 100,000 workers over the next six years. But the number of graduates with ICT skills has fallen away since the early 2000s. People aren't doing computer courses anymore. Yeah, it's a mirror of the uh, available land for housing problem. There are just no people doing it. Programming and engineering in the IT industry is hard and people are not, their kids are not taking it on. They're more interested in becoming lawyers. Exactly, yes, even doctors. Now, Warren Buffett's investment giant Berkshire Hathaway has struck a strategic relationship with Insurance Australia Group and its fast-track $350 billion conglomerate's expansion into the region. Now, IAG says Berkshire, which is one of the top 10 listed companies globally, has taken a 3.7% stake in IAG by way of a $500 million share placement. And that deal will involve a quota share arrangement, which will see Berkshire Hathaway receiving 20% of IAG's consolidated premiums and pay 20% of claims. But it will also give Berkshire Hathaway access to Asia. That's really what it's all about, because IAG's got a very good position right across Asia. So this is, this is the strategic aim of Warren Buffett. Now, um, we worry about uh, 6% unemployment. It could get a lot worse because an analyst from the Committee of Economic Development of Australia is warning that more than 5 million jobs could disappear in the next 10 to 15 years because of technological advances. So, you know, we're on the cusp of a new but very different industrial revolution. And jobs most at risk are telemarketers, models, accountants, auditors, retail salespeople, riggers, real estate agents, security guards, word processors, typists, carpenters, machinists, and commercial pilots. But if you're a dentist, chemical engineer, software and app developer, lawyer, editor, childcare worker, and electrician, you're safe. Even editors? That's right. Lawyers, of course. That's right. As we would expect. And the final bit of news, Gary, is that Woolworths Chief Executive Grant O'Brien has fallen on his sword after almost four years at the helm, following a number of disappointing sales results from the giant retailer. And by replacing O'Brien, Woolworths Board is admitting that its strategy to find growth in the face of new competition from German retailer Aldi has failed, and it cut its profit outlook from 1.8% to a flat result on the back of weaker-than-expected sales and rising investment in its grocery division. Yeah, they, they, they've been in trouble for, for quite a while. Well, Moody's put out a, a report last night actually downgrading Woolworths from uh, stable to negative. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's not good. But Mr O'Brien will do all right because if uh, he's allowed to stay there until all of his rights bear fruit. And that's it for this week, Gary. Good, Leon, that's good. Now, for next week... Next week, we're talking to uh, Samuel Johns. He works at, he's an RMIT alumni, and he actually works at TripAdvisor in Boston. So a very interesting uh, chat with him. So in the meantime, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter at TalkingBizBizz or on Facebook. In the meantime, stay safe, and we'll talk to you next week.